All right, well, if, if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. We're going to be in Galatians 5, 19 through 23 again, and uh, we'll be there for at least one more week, okay? And then we'll move on to chapter 6. I know we've been hovering around 5 for, for months now, but who's in a hurry? Good, all right. I'll be reading to you out of the New King James Version. Again, Paul says, I say then walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. And the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery and fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in times past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and peace. You guys know all the fruit of the Spirit anyway. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. Let's pray. Well, Father, um, it's it's true that any born-again person, anyone who is regenerate by your Spirit, Spirit dwelling in them, um, that this is their desire. But apart from you, it's unachievable. And so, Lord, we constantly need your grace to come alongside of us, to assist us, Lord, your spirit to empower us uh, so that we might live up to uh, these virtues, these ideals. Lord, for your glory and uh, for the benefit of those around us. So I pray that as we continue on with our instruction, that uh, we would be inspired more and more to trust the spirit and to follow his lead in our lives, Lord. So, Lord, thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, go ahead and be seated. Going to be spending my time um, in verse 22, and that's as far as we'll get. So, so let me read it to you, get my own Bible open. Oops. How many of you guys messed up your clock this morning? Just one, two, last night. Sometime, huh? Okay, so uh, Galatians 5, we're going to be in verse 22. Paul says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law, at least currently there's no law against them. So... So what you immediately recognize is it's, it's work uh, versus fruit. The immediate contrast between what the flesh, uh, or we might say the work of the flesh in verse 19, and the fruit of the Spirit in verse 22. There is how the flesh behaves, and then uh, there is what the Spirit produces. Uh, the works of the flesh uh, deal with the immoral behavior of man. That was our discussion last week. Um, isn't the funnest discussion to talk about uh, what we are, what we're made of, the things we like, the things we do. But 
It's all true about us to some degree at some time in our life. Uh, it's ugly. So it's this, this, the immoral behavior of man. The fruit of the Spirit is uh, the outworking of his character uh, in the believer's life. The works of the flesh, as you know very well, they come natural to us because we're broken, morally speaking, and which always manifests itself in rebellion against God. And the fruit of the Spirit, on the other hand, it must be recognized for what it is. It, it is not natural to man. It's not natural to man. It's not the fruit of man's nature. It's certainly not the fruit of our character. Uh, the fruit of the Spirit is the Spirit's character. It's His fruit. It's the virtues of his nature, not our own. And the believer who walks in the spirit, who is actually yielding to his guidance, he, she will exude uh, those characteristics. They will. They will. In fact, as Paul began in the section, he said, walk in the spirit and you will not essentially exude the flesh, the desires of the flesh. And now he's saying, if you walk in the spirit, you will exude the fruit of of the Spirit. Okay. Now, as we've talked about many times, especially as we went through the covenants, uh, this was actually the, the promise uh, concerning the new covenant, as, as God promised to Ezekiel when he said, I will put my Spirit within you, future tense, and I will cause you to walk in my ways, Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27. The promise that all of the past failure of Israel can be a future success for God's new covenant people. It's a promise. Okay. This whole thing about the, this, the fruit not being our own, but something that is produced in us supernaturally, uh, Jesus illustrates it well in John 15, a uh, classic passage. I want to read it to you again. Um, and in fact, Roger's teaching this tonight to the youth. Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. He says, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing, John 15, 1 through 5. Without me, without abiding in him, we can do nothing. And the Greek word for nothing means precisely what it does in English. Okay? Nothing, nothing. So it's through this abiding relationship of trust, uh, loving obedience, the believer bears spiritual fruit. But apart from it, there's just... None. There is only what's left over, and that's the works of the flesh. Okay. Now, people can get a little confused here. Uh, is this fruit produced by Christ, or is it produced by the Holy Spirit? Whose fruit is this? Who's actually doing the work in us? Well, both are. Well, in fact, all three are. The, the Trinity is. You know, Christ is doing the work in our lives through the, what we might say the instrument, uh, instrumentality the mediation of the Holy Spirit. They're, they're partners in our sanctification. Philippians 2.13 says that it is God who works in you both to be willing and to do according to his good pleasure. So he works in us two ways. We've, we've talked about this already from Romans chapter 7 and 8, that uh, he's giving us the will to do his good pleasure, 
But he doesn't leave us there. He gives us the ability to perform his good pleasure. So now we have all three persons of the Trinity involved uh, in the work of our sanctification. The, the only thing that is concerning to me is why does it take all three? must be hard work to transform human beings. It's a big, it's a big cleanup job. They all participate. So let's move on. Notice how Paul says the fruit of the Spirit. He does not say the fruits of the Spirit. How many people have you corrected in your Christian lifetime uh, over that singular versus plural? Self-righteous people do that kind of thing. Thanks for raising your hand, John. <laughs> I, I always do it with the book of Revelation. Everybody says revelations, and I always say, well, actually, it's just one revelation. Get your facts straight. No, I don't like that. <laughs> it's the fruit of the Spirit. It's not the fruits of the Spirit. There's only one fruit of the Spirit, which is love. That's the fruit of the Spirit. But love manifests itself in many forms. It behaves in many ways, in, in the ways mentioned in our text. Love behaves itself with joy and peace and long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Now, this is actually demonstrated more clearly in 1 Corinthians 13, which you're all familiar with, where Paul describes love to us. He says, love is long-suffering. It's kind. And he also says what love is not. He says, love does not envy. It does not parade itself. It is not puffed up. Does not behave rudely. Sorry, John. Is not self-seeking. Is not provoked. Thinks no evil. Does not rejoice in iniquity. Now notice, those eight things that love does not do prove that love is peaceful, kind, good, and self-controlled, as we have in Galatians chapter 5. Also, Paul continues, says, love rejoices in the truth, it bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, love never fails. That shows that love is faithful. And so gentleness actually is the only one not directly stated or implied in 1 Corinthians 13, but don't you think it could probably be rendered from those virtues? I think it most certainly could. So in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul demonstrates all these other virtues of how love behaves. So love is the fruit of the Spirit, but love has many qualities. Now, if we define love biblically, uh, and that would be without consulting popular culture, um, I'm afraid to even think about how they would be defining it these days. We have to conclude from the scriptures that love is that which seeks the ultimate good of its beloved. Love is that which seeks the ultimate good of its beloved. Not because the beloved deserves love necessarily, or because we feel like loving them. Okay? Love does what it does by its very nature. That's its nature. Okay? So God, who is love, he sent his son into the world because his love compelled him to seek our greatest good, which is our salvation. Amen? And then, as Paul says in Romans, how shall he not, who did not withhold his only son from us, how will he not give us all things? It's just salvation is the beginning of God's goodness. Giving Christ was the love gift, if you will, John 3.16. And then in this as well, the, the word gave, the concept of giving, uh, in the context here, uh, for God to give means to give his son as a necessary sacrifice for our sins so that we could be granted eternal life. So that adds to the definition of love. It's sacrificial. Uh, we certainly did not deserve such sacrificial love from God, but God was compelled within himself. Now, I have heard people say, 
uh, you know, try to spin the text and say that because we were so lovable, because we were so worth it, uh, that denies biblical theology. God is compelled by nothing outside of himself. He was compelled completely internally by the nature of his love to reach out for us. Okay? So um, you know yourself, you're not lovable. So that's not why. And we're all sinners, so we didn't deserve it. But he did it. He was motivated internally. Love always acts for the sake of others. Kenneth Weiss, the Greek scholar, says that the chief ingredient of love is self-sacrifice for the benefit of others. Love is other-centered. It's selfless in its motivation. Love is preoccupied with the greatest good of its beloved. And without the Holy Spirit, none of those things can be true about our love. Our love will be extremely limited by our humanity. So I think that because of our flesh, because of the sin nature, we have to ask the question, who is our beloved? Because wouldn't you like to decide who your beloved is? Won't your flesh narrow it down and give a very specific list of who the object of your love is? Okay, if you leave it up to your flesh, we won't really love others as we ought. Instead, we'll leave it to others to seek our ultimate good. That's the way the flesh works. It's selfishly motivated. We'll we'll gladly be someone else's beloved so they can seek our benefit. But in reality, who's our beloved? It's it's good that Jesus prescribes that for us. Okay, the object saying, love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, of course, uh, in speaking to a Bible scholar, you always have to watch out for these guys. He said, who's my neighbor? The text actually says, wanting to justify himself, He said, who's my neighbor? And Jesus, of course, gave the parable of the good Samaritan who loved someone who did not love him. Uh, You know the history between the Jews and the Samaritans. Uh, Jews hated Samaritans. And so this Samaritan was loving this Jew and he loved him at his own expense. He sought the greatest good for his beloved. But actually, Jesus illustrated this another way in Luke 14. Uh, it's probably not a real popular illustration in the West. And I like the example because it's a context that we can actually generate on our own, whereas the context of the Good Samaritan is a random and unplanned event. Here's what Jesus said. He said, when you give a dinner or a supper, do not ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, nor rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. Luke 14, 12 through 14. You see, Jesus, in trying to identify who our neighbor is, uh, he's not saying that the rich are not our neighbor. He's not saying that friends are not our neighbor. But what he does is he, he removes the element of reciprocation so that he can broaden our view of who our neighbor actually is. Those who do not have the ability to reciprocate um, what we do for them, those often are the people that our eyes are closed to. Okay? Our neighbor is our beloved. And our neighbor is, in some households, it's across the living room. It's a spouse, a sibling, a parent, or a child. Our neighbor is across the aisle, politically. Right. You all know that look, right? Yes. <laughs> across the street, next door. Uh, next continent, regardless of occupation or religion, race, sexual preference, socioeconomic status, whatever, they're our neighbor. And we have this 
example to us to know that this is our neighbor. Because Jesus, the, the high king of heaven who humbled himself and came to earth, he reached the wealthy, he reached the poor, the prostitute, traitors of his own nation, called the tax collector, the social outcast known as the leper, the sick, the blind, the lame, the mute, the demonized, the Samaritan, the Greek, the Roman, the pagan, the dirty, the violent, the desperate, and then those on the highways and byways who would be complete strangers. They were all Jesus' neighbor. Okay? If you were walking among us today, he would love the political left, the communist, the socialist, the Muslim, the drug dealer, the drug abuser, the transgender, the homosexual, and the person sitting in a prison cell. Wouldn't he? Most definitely. Yep. He would love them all, and if the love of God is in us, we are compelled to do the same. So if we are not loving the neighbor who is in our path, seeking their ultimate good, we are either not redeemed ourselves, or we're in rebellion and stubbornness, and in our stubbornness we're quenching the Holy Spirit's will, and we must repent. And I, I, I say that with complete honesty. If, if you're born again, and you are not compelled within you to love your neighbor. The scriptures, John especially, would say, you are not redeemed, or you're in rebellion. And the only solution for that is some solid repentance. Amen? Yeah. yeah. Whenever you see love for others hindered in your life, you're not walking in the spirit, but in the flesh. It's a very simple gauge to go by. Now, just because all people should be the objects of our love, it doesn't remove the order in which our love should be distributed and the amount given. Uh, of course, uh, and this shouldn't need to be said, but we are in Western culture. Our family, our spouse, children, mother, father, and siblings should be the first to enjoy the benefits our love, of our love and its abundance. Okay? Uh, that's just something we have to say today. We have to be reminded. Listen to what Paul says in this regard. Because the Greeks could be, actually it's reverse, we can be very much like the Greeks. Okay? We're in very much a Greek society, a Hellenistic kind of people. But Paul says, if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. First Timothy chapter 5, verse 8. And the interesting thing is, is that provision is just one element of love that is necessary just for survival. So it's actually one of the most basic forms of love. Basic. And sadly, our domestic love is often distracted by our love for those outside the home. Relationships at home are taken for granted, while those outside the home are the beneficiaries of our goodness. Uh, for example, you know, some men are good friends, but they're kind of lousy husbands. You ever met one of those? He's a good friend, but he's not a great husband. They exercise so much self-sacrifice for those outside the home that little is left for the wife. She doesn't get the attention. Some women are very respectful to other men, but critical of their husbands. Parents can be very affectionate to other people's children while being harsh with their own. Children are often friendly to children of other homes, but they are unkind and impatient with their own siblings. Or they will respect other adults, but dishonor their parents. We're a backwards kind of people, aren't we? Yeah. And by the way, all the lists that I just gave you uh, are my experience with people, counseling. It's tragic. We're backwards. You know, loving those who 
or rather loving those we know most intimately, uh, those that are constantly in our space, that's where love really counts. That's where we know if you really got it. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And what is gravely overlooked is that our love for family is often the testing ground for the genuineness of our love for Christ. That's what John tells us. God has placed family on top in the order of priority to be the first to benefit from our love. So what does love look like? What does it look like? The answer is in the text. Paul says love manifests itself or behaves itself with joy. And the others, peace and long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and pretending like I have it memorized, and self-control. Let's look at joy for a moment. First, like love, the joy mentioned here is not a product of our own making. It's not us. It's the fruit of the Spirit, okay? It comes out of His love in us. It's a supernatural joy. It's, it's produced in the life of the believer who is subject to the Spirit. It's His fruit. And mind you, this joy is not to be confused with laughing. Some people just don't laugh on the outside. Do you know them? You probably know Mike Strobach. Is he here today? <laughs> he laughs on the inside. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Joy can produce laughter and rejoicing, but that is not joy. Uh, maybe you've noticed that people often laugh and rejoice over evil. So we don't want to confuse the two. Okay. Uh, joy is an expression of love, would never uh, rejoice over evil. So joy is not laughing or rejoicing. Uh, that's another Greek word that often results uh, from joy or accompanies it. This word means to be glad. It means to delight, to be glad, to delight. It's gladness of the heart. It's the opposite of grief and sorrow. And this Holy Spirit-generated joy, kind of joy, is not quenched by circumstances or tribulations or trials, suffering and sorrow. That's one way to know if your joy is Holy Spirit-produced lets you know that in trials, if you're walking in the Spirit or you're not, okay? The, the Spirit's joy transcends difficulties. James says, my brethren, consider it all joy when you fall into various trials, not just the one, but various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, James 1, 2, and 3. Counting it joy, considering it joy. So because of the Holy Spirit, we can be glad regardless. Life does not get to dictate the joy of the believer, okay? Joy can be determined by the, the power of the Spirit. The Thessalonians, for example, they receive the gospel in much affliction and persecution, but the Holy Spirit gave them joy, 1 Thessalonians 1.6. Mind you, the church of Thessalonica was the persecuted church in the New Testament of the, the Greeks, among the Greeks. Of course, the audience in the book of Hebrews uh, was the persecuted church among the Jews. But in the midst of all of their suffering and the trials that they faced from their own people and families, they had great joy from the Holy Spirit. So his joy transcends our afflictions. So that tells us what joy is, but why is it loving to be joyful or glad? Why is joy an expression of love? So to illustrate this, I think, from a negative perspective, I'd like to give you an exercise. You guys like exercises? It all depends, doesn't it? Yeah. Next time you're in a room with a group of people and one of them is clearly frustrated or angry, pay attention to how that person's mood affects everyone else in the room. You probably have already done that. You'll notice how, 
how much control the angry person has over the attitude of the whole group. People feel like they're walking on eggshells and they're visibly looking awkward. No one is thinking about the conversation that they were in because they're too distracted by the angry person in the room. People are no longer enjoying themselves as they once were, but they're looking for an exit. You notice that? Who loves an angry person? They're so enjoyable. But isn't someone's attitude a powerful influencer? It's huge, it's huge. In a positive way, this is true of joy. I think the benefits of joy are significant. I find it very interesting, uh, the statement that Nehemiah makes to the people of Israel. He says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Nehemiah 8.10. Well, that's a nice statement, but what does it all mean? The joy of the Lord is my strength? What's the context of that? Well, the context is the people weeping. The people weeping. And in their sorrows, and in their fears even, he told them to consider the Lord's joy for their own strength. He's saying the gladness of God will strengthen you. The gladness of God will strengthen you. He's saying, consider how he delights in you and it will encourage you. It will lift you out of your sorrows. So a question, is it loving to strengthen and encourage people when they're weakened by the troubles of life? Is that a loving thing to do? I think it is. The Spirit's joy in our lives has that effect on others. It doesn't just sustain us through trials, but our joy has a way of sustaining others. Okay? God's joy certainly does. You know, I believe that for husbands, parents, elders, pastors, and others in authority, that when our love is exercised in joy, it lifts people up. It gives them strength. You know, in the military, I felt confident when my commanders were glad. Yeah, but there was a total sense of uncertainty when they were upset. And it, it, it affected the entire battalion. One man could bring us all down. Or one man could bring us all up. It's also true in our marriage and our families. You know, our children have a certain way about them when we delight in them. Have you noticed? Man, when I tell Samuel that I'm proud of him, he just, and I just think he's, he could take on the world. You know, he just brightens up. I tell Asher that I'm proud of him and he gets this kind of awkward, bashful look on his face. But it makes him feel all warm and fuzzy. When I delight in him, it's, it changes things. They thrive under the light of our joyful countenance, just like we thrive under the light of God's joyful countenance, but they struggle under the cloud of our disapproval. Now, listen carefully to the priestly blessing of number six. Listen to the language. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. What do you think that's all about? What does it mean as you, for you as a parent to have your face shine upon your children? It's filled with delight and with joy. So he says, the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Yeah, God's shining face of approval, his elevated countenance of delight in his people was to be a source of blessing, he says, and peace for his people. God's approval, God's delight. When Jesus was baptized, what did the father say about his son? This is my son in whom I am well pleased. Do you think a son who knows he's on his way to a cross needs to hear that from his dad? I'll say, yeah. But the opposite is true. Any other countenance of God is paralyzing and frightening. I'll take the former, okay, yeah. Same is true with my wife. <laughs> but when she is joyful, 
For me as a husband, everything is right in the world, no, no matter how bad things are. When Shandy's happy, when the queen's happy, her servant is happy. Amen. Joy and gladness are powerful tools of love. Yeah, the love of the Spirit, remember, always presents itself joyfully. Okay? If you are want of joy in your life, know that there is a lack of the Spirit's love in your life. Okay? Now, as I said before, uh, this doesn't mean that everyone displays joy in the same way. Uh, some people display the, the Spirit's joy uh, on the outside, uh, and others have a more kind of modest expression of it. Okay? It's a matter of personality often. Uh, my joy isn't bubbly. Uh, as um, Jamie Lund has pointed out, I have a melancholy personality. Uh, I'm not even sure what that means anymore or at all, but uh, I just don't have an explosive kind of joy. I went to Winter Jam with the youth group one year, and uh, you know, it's all of these Christian bands and stuff, and it's super loud, and the kids are jumping around and stuff, and I'm standing there like this because. I'm worshiping on the inside, and, and, and I'm enjoying myself, um, but I don't jump around. You know, I feel awkward clapping in church. Um, I feel awkward singing in front of people in church, even though they're drowning me out. It's just, I'm just not an external kind of person. It's just not me. But, you know, Hillary Cobb's joy is like a glitter bomb. <laughs> and she's just showering people with joy. And she has a way about her in her joy that just makes everybody in the room feel happy and it lifts them. And, um, and that's sweet. I love it. Um, I don't explode with glitter, but she does. And I'm thankful for it. Amen? Yeah, it's very sweet. So love exudes supernatural joy that is beneficial to others. And we should expect it to be so because love seeks the ultimate good of others. Okay? by its joy. Okay, real quick. We're not real quick. I could slow this way down to get, uh, not let us out too soon, but I won't do that to you. Uh, but what if peace that is born out of love? Uh, keeping peace in context of the scriptures, uh, the Holy Spirit's peace opposes conflict and always works toward harmony, even while rooting out that which tries to destroy it. You can do it at the same time. Uh, the most necessary good in the midst of conflict is reconciliation. And it's by the Holy Spirit, as Paul says, that we can strive to live at peace with all men without repaying evil for evil. Romans 12, 17 through 18. I know it's, it's not easy, but we can do it. And the Holy Spirit doesn't just restrain the, the reciprocation of evil. He works in us to make peace with the most difficult people. Still frustrated with him about that. Because I can feel him tugging on me to go, to speak kindly to those people. He just doesn't see it my way. <laughs> now, it doesn't mean that every hostile person will be at peace with us, but it does ensure, as Paul says, that we can be at peace with them. Did you catch that? We can be at peace with them, even when they won't be with us. And, and having peace with others is not a passive concept with the Holy Spirit, especially within the body of Christ. You know, doing nothing, avoiding hostility is not really the Spirit's method because it's not the way of love. It's just not, okay? The Holy Spirit is all about engaging to bring reconciliation in the right way and at the right time. Now, Peter says that peace is the way of life for the believer. He said, seek peace and pursue it. And he never says if. 
Seek peace if. He says, seek peace and pursue it. 1 Peter 3.11. Now, the context of 1 Peter does not allow for the pursuit of inner peace. That's the pursuit of the mystic and the monk, but that is not the Christian under commission, right? We have a commission to go, okay, to seek reconciliation. He's talking about peace with others, and he learned that from Jesus. He learned it from the Father. God sent his Son into a sinful and hostile world, hostile toward him. Romans 5 says that while we were the enemies of God, God sent his Son into the world. It was a mission of peace, but of course God's method of peace involves a cross and a lot of blood. Colossians 1.20. So peace often comes at a cost to us in our pursuit of God's ultimate good for others. It requires that we go out of our way, that we swallow our pride and do what makes for peace. But while the Holy Spirit is not passive in his pursuit of peace, he does wait and watch for the right occasion. That is, the Holy Spirit is an opportunist. Have you ever noticed that? He's an opportunist. Paul said, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. Is that an opportunity? If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For in so doing, you'll heap coals of fire on his head. So do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now that old parable, nobody knows where it came from. But we do know what it means. Okay? It means to lavish goodness on people that were your enemies, to soften them, to endear them to you. Okay? The goal is to win them. So the Holy Spirit says, there's an opportunity. Wait for it. Pray for it. And when it comes, strike. Okay? Do not be over, overcome by evil, but overcome. I'm sorry. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I have this memorized in the ESV. The New King James is messing me up really bad. That's Romans 12, 20 through 21. So in other words, the Holy Spirit, of course, he has infallible foreknowledge, but he, he watches for people to be vulnerable. He watches for them. He's waiting for them. Why? Because he wants to make peace. He wants to make peace. And then he applies his goodness to win his enemies over, as does the person who walks in the Spirit. Look for opportunities. The Spirit-led person cannot be content where conflict exists, not in the home, not in the church, not in the neighborhood, not at work, not among friends, and not with unbelievers. And I'll tell you, we used to have these two neighbors, and it was this constant civil war between them. I was friends with both of them. And I'd constantly have to listen to the one neighbor <laughs> talk trash about the other neighbor <coughs> from both of them. And, uh, and then trying to produce a context where there could be some reconciliation. Being a peacemaker, not always easy. Christians should seek peace at work among friends and, um, and with unbelievers. Yep. Conflict is just not the ultimate good for man. So again, if peace is not your pursuit as a believer, I have to say, you're either unredeemed or in rebellion against the Spirit. You're just not walking in His strength. So I would pray that the Holy Spirit, in His faithful love, haunt you <laughs> until you yield to Him and pursue peace with others. Amen? He's the holy hound. He's good at what he does. All right, let me close with a brief um, benediction from Romans chapter 15. If you'd please stand and then, and then we'll pray. It's Romans 15, 13. You don't have to turn there. Paul says, now may the God of hope 
fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Well, Father, it's obviously we're not going to walk always in the power of the Spirit flawlessly, but hopefully, Lord, progressively, that day by day we would, we would just walk closer with him, we would yield to his leading and his guiding. Because, Lord, not only do you seek our ultimate good, but you want to use us for the ultimate good of others. You want to love them. You want us to, to meet their greatest need. Lord, for the unbeliever, of course, it's salvation. For the believer, it's our sanctification. So, Lord, help us to partner with you to fulfill your will in this world, Lord, as we walk in the Spirit. So just help us, we pray. Grant us grace in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, guys.